0: Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our fourth episode in 2022 with me, Nicholas Baird-Lundblad,
1: and with me, Richard Allen.
0: As we've advertised several times, we really appreciate all of your feedback and your ideas. And this episode, we're going to riff off of a listener question. So Richard, why don't you bring us up to speed with what the listener question was?
1: This is from a, a former colleague who, who got in touch, has been listening to the podcast and uh says so she finds it useful, which is great. And we're really pleased about that. That's why we do it. But, but she said it would be really interesting to hear us talk about the challenges that a content policy team faces, and in particular, you know, how, how to structure your content policy team, assuming you're a platform that has uh, you, you know, user-generated or third-party content on it. How do, you, how do you structure that team? How should it interact with other teams within the organization? There's lots and lots of questions about you know, the, the role of public policy, uh, so politics should play in terms of content policy um, and so she really want to talk us to talk about that and um, just so much here isn't it there? Nicholas there's, like a- there, there's
0: an enormous amount of it's a really good question by the way I think it's it's one that we we are uh, very grateful for I think it's also a question that digs deep into to the evolution of content policy as such because you used to start out with a public policy, uh, department and then perhaps you had a legal takedown department but you slowly started to realize that there is this other need that's not being filled by the public policy folks who are outward facing talking about what policies should look like and it's not necessarily faced by the strict legal takedowns that you do because of the illegality of content for example but there's there's something in between and what is that something what is it that you discover after a while when you've when you're starting to evolve as a platform?
1: I mean, the way I'd describe it is that as a platform, you end up needing to have a body of private law. So there's public law that you operate within, and, and that will be the public law of the countries where you operate. But again, for an American platform, that's predominantly the American public law, in which case it's very, very permissive of speech. And so the public law sets the outside envelope within which you need to work. And as I say, if you're an American company, the outside envelope is huge. There's this massive space that the public law permits, and you can leave that completely empty. You can be a, a kind of say-what-you-like platform and let everybody do anything that is legal within the United States. That's one model, and some platforms have attempted to do that. But much more typically, what a platform does is it then creates its own body of private law. That that constrains speech beyond that the constraints that are imposed by public law, and that private law is your content policy. And th- this word policy uh, is really challenging when you actually work inside a company because it means these very different things. There is public policy, which is interfacing with governments, and is a debate actually often about setting the limits of the public law, so deciding whether or not something is criminal as a, a matter of uh, public law and legislation. And then there's this whole other world of policy, which may be small p policy, which is your internal policy. And I say, for me, that's really creating a body of private law. And the process you go through to do it is very similar to a legislative <laughs> process that a parliament would go through, where you yeah. state the pros and cons of different models. And then you end up having to set a rule uh, and then figure out how to enforce that rule
0: it's and it's sometimes referred to as user policy as well, right that's yes. the other term that you see being bandied about, which essentially means that you you have this policy for what your users can do and if we're tracing the origins of a content policy team and figuring out how they sort of where they grow from in the organization because that's a helpful way to think about them, they
1: typically grow out of something called the toss what's the yeah, toss the, the terms of service see, right so there, there's there's content policy. So it's essentially, when you sign up to a service, you're signing a private contract. And the, and the private contract is enshrined within something called the terms of service uh, and the different sort of ways of framing that. But essentially it says, look, when I'm using the service, this is what I agree I can and can't do. And this is what I'm agreeing to allow the platform to do. So it includes all the things like your data, how they can use your data and so on. It may include things like whether you can have multiple accounts, whether or not you have to use your real identity, or you can use a, a pseudonym, all of those things will be covered within it. And then typically there'll be a line in there, or well, a few lines that talk about behaviour on the service. So it'll say, often, I, "I promise I will not post anything illegal. I promise that I will not use the platform to, to do anything." So it's both both content and behaviour. I won't harass other users of the platform. I won't, again, depending on the platform, sometimes it says I won't share pornography unless it's a pornography platform, in, case, in which case the terms of service say, I will only use it to share pornography. <laughs> I, mean, I won't use it for other things that are non-pornography. So that much of...
0: will not share anything that's copyright protected. Yeah, it right, say. So, I yes. copyright
1: protected. so your terms of service to say is this contract where you're agreeing to a set of rules that condition your use of the platform. Um, and, and you're exactly right, out of that will spring, say, normally version one, really simple, probably cut and paste it from another website. So someone builds a a new chat service and they'll cut and paste and and it'll say things like, I won't do terrorism or, you know, child abuse and various, you know, all the worst kind of offences. And it'll often use terms like, I won't harass other users or, you know, I won't do anything illegal. And then very quickly what happens is somebody complains about the behaviour of another user or the content they're sharing and you have to go back to your tasks and say is this against our rules or not against our rules? And so your simple rule, you start having to apply layers of interpretation. And and really from those small origins, you end up over time often creating quite a beast in terms of rules upon rules upon rules. And then you need a team (coughs) that then takes that, develops the rules, and interprets uh, in in the jargon, they call them edge cases, interprets things when there's some content that you're not sure whether it falls one side of the line or the other.
0: So we start with a toss. And from that, we see that there are a series of different cases that we need to to look closer at. And, and what usually happens then in the sort of second evolutionary phase of, of this team is that that you start to say, when you sign up to this service, you also sign up to our content guidelines or our that's community cool. guidelines. So, so you break out from the TOS this notion of a code of behavior, a set of norms, really, that apply to your use of the platform and the content that you post on the platform. And this is then the sort of, you see that this is an institution or this is a set of rules that needs an organizational owner. And that's the point at which you realize we really need a user or a content policy team to look at this. And, and when that happens, that, that team has a, a, a sort of a whole very wide remit of make sure that people behave well and don't post bad content. How should you approach that if you're building a content policy team? What's your first, if you're in that chair and you are sort of sit down, what's the first thing you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the foundational questions that you touched on it is the extent to which you as the platform are going to take responsibility for setting and enforcing the rules versus allowing users to do it. So some platforms, uh, uh, Reddit was a notable one where the moderation was largely in the hands of people who ran individual spaces within the platform. And that's a perfectly viable model. So you can end up having quite different within a, you know, within broad platform-wide constraints, but you can have quite different rules within the platform. It actually happens to a certain extent on services like Facebook, where Mm -hmm. when people run individual pages on Facebook, they might have additional rules that go beyond Facebook's rules. So, for example... Or groups, for example. Or groups, yeah. Yeah. No swearing. You know, Facebook doesn't ban swearing, but you might decide for your group or your page that you're not going to have content with swearing. So one foundational question is, the extent to which you're going to deal with it versus the extent to which uh, a user is going to deal with it. There's also another interesting question, which is the extent to which the con- you see yourselves as censoring third parties. Use the language of censorship that you're you're applying your rules to users who are posting content versus the extent to which you're applying standards to content you yourself have commissioned. Again, that's quite a different model. And yeah, the most extreme in a model like Netflix, you know, the content that's on Netflix has been commissioned by Netflix. So they have a very different relationship with that content from the content on a, a platform like Facebook where users, individual users are posting. It. And then you've got something like YouTube, which will kind of often sits in the middle where there is a mixture of content that users have posted and then some content which YouTube themselves have commissioned. So we look at that sort of whole landscape and say, look, different types of content and potentially some spaces the platform being dominant other spaces the the uh, user being dominant Um, and then you need to decide where you're going to kind of sit uh, all of these different elements and which which team will take ownership of them so for the commissioned content it's likely to actually to live with the media team there are people actually commissioning that content and uh, they're going to have those standards uh, for user-generated content, actually often, and this is the case when I arrived at Facebook, certainly that it was the content moderators themselves who kind of owned the standards. So the people who were on the front line, uh, uh, in terms of the company hierarchy, often quite junior staff who actually owned those content moderation guidelines. And then over time, because they became controversial and they be- they moved front and center, that responsibility moved and ended up sitting in the public policy team which in itself caused quite a lot of controversy and still does because people criticize it and say look you are making decisions for political reasons Uh, because it sits within the public policy team presentationally that looks and feels like uh, the rules are being set at the convenience of politicians or under external political pressure that is coming in through that public policy team
0: you often bring us back to the notion of harm which I think is yeah. helpful in order to think about these things and and <clears throat> it seems to me that there are at least two very different kinds of harm involved in setting up a content policy team. One of them of course is the reputational harm which is why this accusation of, of the politi- politicization of, of content policy comes about. People say you're just taking this down because it looks bad for you but there is another more subtle harm that, that people tend to overlook I think and I don't know if you share this but but I, I, I really think that there's this notion of um of functional harm. The platform just won't function if it falls apart into a polarized set of people shouting at each other or someone just posting an enormous amount of spam or someone uh deciding that this particular that they will troll this particular group endlessly and post a lot of this. so there's like this notion that there is a you're protecting the the social value of the platform, and you're protecting the reputational value of the platform as well. So there's two major harms here. Which one should the content policy team focus the most on, or is there an order in which you should approach them?
1: So so I actually think the most important one is the functional harm in the sense that, look, if if I use a service, when I log on to that service or access that service, if it behaves in ways which I find unpleasant and distressing, I'm going to turn it off. And so I just think for a platform, it's existential that they have rules that meet people's expectations. So if it's you know, a space where you don't expect to see pornography, then, then the most important thing for the platform is having the rules and the process in place to make sure that that's not going to be your daily experience. Um, I think that's much more important in a sense than whether the politicians like or dislike the fact that you allow the pornography. The most important thing is that your users... You know, don't are are not sort of shocked and disappointed by what they see. To your point about behavior, some of it's about literally the content, but quite a lot of it's about behavior. That when they, you know, post something nice and positive, they don't immediately get trolled by people who then uh, disrupt things. You you can have a, you know, a large, happy group of people, uh, a thousand people enjoying a rich conversation, and then three or four people could come in and destroy it for them. So, from a platform's point of view, being able to stay on top of the kind of behaviours that make the platform an unpleasant, hostile environment for their use, I think, is critical. Um, and then the political aspect is: look, sometimes you know the politicians will reflect genuine user concerns. So people will go to their politicians when when the platform's not treating them well, or when they when they're disappointed, and they'll say to their politician, "Look, can you get the platform to be better at this?" And I think it, at its best, that dynamic is quite healthy, and that's certainly what the UK government for example hopes to get out of their online safety bill that you know when citizens of the United Kingdom feel the platforms aren't behaving well they'll be able to go to their regulator a a UK regulator who will then be able to put pressure on the platform to make them conform to the expectations of UK users that's when it works really well Um, and, and that's I I think in most cases it will it will uh, act as a positive dynamic, but in other cases, sometimes the politicians have just got their own hobby horse, uh, and and they will, you know, either get upset because something's been taken down where there was a good user protective reason to take it down, or get so- upset because something's been left up when actually it wasn't really causing distress to users and they were actually finding that content quite positive and helpful. Um, and so that's where I think the political dynamic is much much more uh, challenging uh, because a politician wants the platform to do something for reasons other than the general public interest. And the classic example that we can't avoid is this whole debate around particularly present form President Trump, when he was on Twitter and Facebook, and he ended up getting banned and the things that he said and whether you know the platforms are censoring his content. That was one where I think, you know, the political debate was quite divorced from this notion of harm to the users and, and actually just directly partisan.
0: Yes, and and many users indeed actually wanted to preserve those communities. And it's interesting to me because one of the things that we end up... When we talk about content policy, it's almost always as if we're saying that the the entire platform ecology, no matter what platform you look at, like, is essentially falling apart. But there's so much pro-social behavior on these platforms, groups that work really well, that have set up their own norms and conform to them. I'm a member of, of several different online groups across a couple of different platforms. And I must say for the majority of them, they seem to be working really well. And the reason they work well is that they often return to and articulate the norms and rules that apply for behavior in that particular gathering. And so to to me, the 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 sort of takeaway from this is that in the majority of cases it works really well to allow users to set their own rules when there's a limited group but when that group is when it when you sort of enter into the public space of platforms instead, that's when content policy needs to really intervene does that sound right
1: yeah i, I think it's partly that and and um I think, there. Were, well, again, to break the problem down, there are t- two different aspects. One is, you know, what what's the bad content that you would be exposed to if you went and looked for it? And then what's the bad content you're exposed to incidentally without even having gone to look for it and it's just sort of been thrust at you? And you're right, I mean, my experience, I think, is probably like yours. I've been using social media for years. Uh, you know, my friends generally don't publish. Post stuff that is uh, offensive or breaks the rules. I can look at my newsfeed every day and I I can't remember ever seeing anything that made me upset or distressed or that seemed completely inappropriate uh, because that's the the sort of group of people I've chosen and that's the signals I've given the platform about what I want to see. Um, So so there, my experience as you described is very pro-social. What would be harmful, I think, is if there were other ways for content to be pushed at me that was outside of that framework that I feel comfortable with. And so there, there's a lot of questions being asked about where, when platforms promote content, or whether that should be different. So to give you an example, you know, uh, uh, you can imagine a platform wanting to promote television shows to uh, people. We know people are interested in TV, and so we're going to promote content that other people have shared about interesting TV shows. Now you could you could not apply any filter there. It, uh, you could just say, well, if it's a post about a TV show, I'll show it to you. And then I could start receiving posts about TV shows that are very offensive to me, that I would find really problematic. I don't know, yeah, full of anti-vax conspiracy theories or something like that. I don't like. Um, uh, so when content is being promoted to you, I think there's a question of whether you apply a filter. And the filter basically says, look, we're going to keep everything very mainstream. Um, so that's one, I think, set of questions that are quite top of mind for people now. And, and uh, you know, more um, dangerous examples of people who use is, look, if somebody's you know researching something like suicide or self-harm, what's the kind of content that will then sort of start appearing in their feed? Is it going to be content that encourages them uh, towards self-harm or discourages them to self-harm? So there's a lot about that promotional stuff. And then I think the second piece is, look, if, if uh, the other question is, look, if it's not you or me, uh, but if it's somebody who is genuinely in, you know seeking out a network of people that we would regard as antisocial, uh, hopefully reasonably objectively, so people who are getting together in order to cause violence or harm against others in, in some form, like what content can they find? And So that's the sort of, uh, it's less about the content being promoted to people. It's more about like if people go to the dark side, how dark is the dark side? Hmm. So there has to be a set of content policies that tries to deal with, with that. And ultimately there, you know, if a platform's going for like zero tolerance of that real dark side content, which would be stuff like terrorist material or child abuse material, then what you're doing is you're going to drive the people off the platform. You're going to try and make it so there's nothing on the platform for those people at all, and they will have to go elsewhere.
0: And one part of the reason that I wanted to get at this is I think that if you look at a small group and you see somebody misbehaving and and not doing what, the group has accepted as their shared rules. Uh, they're often banned. They're thrown yeah. out of the group, and so the moderators of that smaller group, even if it's on Facebook or Reddit or whatever, could just kick people out. Yeah. So banning is actually uh, it's not a it's not an unusual thing. You will ban people who are sort of, uh, but but you that's harder to do from the platform proper, from sort of all of Facebook, and that brings us to to a question of sort of the content policy and user policy within these closed smaller groups seems to be working really well because of two things. One is the clearly articulated norms and second is the complete lack of tolerance. <laughs> so yeah. you throw people out whether whether they're not behaving, right? But you can't apply those rules equally well at scale. So how does scale enter the equation for these teams, for the content policy teams?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, often they just don't know. So I think scale kind of um, smooths things out and, and takes out a lot of those social refinements. So you're right. So there's there's groups and things that police each other. And there's just the act of defriending or unfollowing, which is a very common act every day. If somebody, again, to the point, look, if somebody was posting stuff that I hated that was appearing in my newsfeed, I've got a very simple option. I just click, you know, and buy, and I'm not going to follow them anymore. And uh, So that's sort of really straightforward. And and that's a level of, you know, me understanding my limits. So in a sense, I have my personal content policy. We all do. We have our own personal tolerances for what we like and dislike. Um, and so we're able to apply those at a very, very uh, minute level in a way that a platform can never do. So a platform sort of has to generalize, Um, So I think the platform is able to deal with these very extreme things, keep those off. Uh, Where it's really difficult, I think, for platforms and where they often come unstuck is where they're dealing with stuff that is not at the absolute limit of what's the dark side, but that is offensive to quite a lot of people. Uh, And so the example would be, you know, quite a lot of um, of far-right political content, for example, where people are not being out and out racist in a way that um would get them banned from the platform but there's a lot of kind of implicit language or uh, the phrase I often uses a dog whistle language where you're you know it's very obvious what someone's intent is uh and and uh, but they're not actually using explicit language so there i think platforms really struggle that the best mechanism is to say for an individual to say i'm not going to have any connection with that person i'm going to make sure they're outside of it but people will often go further and say look even though I'm not connected with them, I've seen their content, and I want you platform to ban them. So, so even though it's not uh, directly affecting me anymore, I still think that you should ban them because it's going to affect other people. And and this, you know, particularly something like dog whistle racism is so pernicious that that I don't want to be on you as a platform if you're allowing people like that to send signals to other people. So it's almost like a sort of individual boycott of the platform. And again, that's very dangerous for platforms where people feel that way.
0: And that sort of brings us to a third theory of harm, which is that that content policy is there to stop um, not just the functioning of the platform nor the reputation of the platform, but to actually make sure that the societies we live in don't uh, end up in a worse state. Because of the kind of communication people can engage in, uh, that do you do you think yes. content policy team essentially then is to some small extent responsible for democratic dialogue in an open society?
1: I mean, this is really contested and contestable, actually. And again, to look at it, um, but I think it's, it's actually one of the most interesting questions because there is an assumption that that. Uh, that um, platforms are able to set the rules for dialogue, and and again, the U.S. recent experience is a classic one. With people on both sides, there are people on on the broadly speaking the sort of left side of the argument saying absolutely this that the platforms have been too permissive and have allowed too much uh, harmful speech on the platforms, and that therefore, uh, in a, the sense, the rise of Donald Trump and the the events of January the sixth and so on are the fault of or can be traced back to content policy or flip it around. Had content policy been more restrictive on platforms, Donald Trump wouldn't have been elected January the 6th, wouldn't have happened, etc. That's That's a contention that, that quite a lot of people have. And then equally, there are people on the right who say, you know, uh, the platforms are t- too restrictive already and they're interfering with genuine uh, democratic speech and that therefore the platforms are tilting everything to the left uh, by... By uh, I- intervening, and so you can imagine, from a platform point of view, your content bosses: where do you go when when both sides are blaming you for uh, having an impact on the on the social sphere? And again, I don't think it's clear. I don't think it's clear either way to say, look, if you you know tweak the hate speech rules of a platform to make it more restrictive or more permissive, exactly what impact that would have? You you can reasonably assume that it's going to have. Well, it's certainly going to have an impact on the platform. How much has an impact on people's behavior in, in, out in the real world is harder, I think, to, to figure out, given all the other noise that's going on, all the other media, or the, the entire sort of social context.
0: I, and, and social also seems to tell us that platforms have really graduated into social institutions because there are no social institutions that are not being subjected to the same kind of criticism. Think about universities, for example. For ages, the right and left have been fighting on whether or not the universities are left leaning or right leaning, if they're turning the nation more to the right or more to the left. Or mass media, same thing there. Is mass media turning to the left or is it turning to the right? And we're now asking the same kind of questions about platforms and, and whether or not we believe that there is a theory of change here that's accurate it seems to suggest at least that platforms have now become a proper social institution at the same scale as mass media as university as education etc and so it's being subjected to the same kind of criticism and scrutiny Uh, i think that's right
1: and of those two actually i think the university example is really interesting i think the mass media one Less so, at least for user-generated content platforms. So the mass media one, I think, is relevant when we're talking about content that's been commissioned by a platform. So, for example, Spotify is in the middle of this big row at the moment over a podcast uh, that contains offensive content. And people have sort of said, well, this is different because the platform themselves commissioned it, so that's much more like a mass media editorial decision, shall we say? Let's use that language. It's less content policy and more editorial decision about what you, as a mass media service, are are choosing to commission and make money from and and uh, promote. The other piece of it, the the sort of speech of third parties, the classic content policy where you're regulating third parties, I think is actually much much closer to the university model, where uh, you know it really is that question of what does a university permit or allow the students and others on campus to say and do? What kind of societies can I have? You know? Can you have a university Nazi society or not? You know, if you uh, can you have a, a university single sex society? All of those kind of rules uh, that. You know, people will uh, argue about within the university space where the university is the host, but the voices are the voices of individuals who have come to that university. They're not, they've not been commissioned in, in the same sort of sense by the university. The, the university is policing those voices. I think that's very much where where platforms find themselves in in respect of third-party content. And a lot of the arguments play out, actually, in a a very similar way. I think that that, uh, uh, association is correct. Universities, again, generally see themselves as pro-free speech, but also see that they have a duty of care towards the academic body. And so they're, again, trying to weigh up those two things against each other, just like a platform would.
0: It would be really interesting to think about what it would mean for a content producer to achieve tenure on a platform, for <laughs> example. <laughs> Who would we safeguard? Who would we give that kind of, of carte blanche to continue talking? Um it's a it's an intriguing thing. Now, so so let's get back to the I think the listener question was really interesting in that it also asks for the construction of a team like yeah. this. So we should talk about the construction of the team, the kind of components you need, and then the decision-making in the team. But let's start with them. Um, with the sort of components that you need in a content policy team. You're not just going to have a lot of people endlessly scrolling on the screen and trying to figure out what should we take down, what should we keep up. You have to really organize this work thoughtfully. What are the main components in your mind?
1: So for me, uh, my experience again, this is learning from experience, is that we often got it wrong in that that I think um, we didn't create a dualistic a, a structure. I, it needs at least two components and potentially three. Uh, and the two components I think you need are a regulator and a legislature. And I think we can learn a lot from from government here. And often those things get sort of sh- smushed up together within uh, content policy world, within, within platforms. If I were starting from scratch, I would be very clear that there are two quite different functions. There's a legislative function where you set the rules. And that's a highly political function. Just as it is, you know, in government, there, there is uh, the UK legislature is going to define in the online safety bill, what constitutes legal or illegal speech, and it's going to do that in a political environment as a political matter. Once it's defined where the boundaries are, it then hands that set of rules over to a regulator whose job it is to enforce those rules on a daily basis. Now, the regulator has some discretion, there'll be some interpretation, but but broadly speaking, the, the rules are set by the legislature. They're then handed to a regulator And the regulator is really good at doing things in a neutral way. If the legislature is, you know, optimised for politics, the regulator is optimised for lack of politics and neutrality uh, and tries to be incredibly dispassionate about the way it applies the rules. And then if what it turns out is that the public are unhappy with the way that the rules are operating in practice, they'll complain to the regulator... What the regulator doesn't do is go, oh, I'll just change the rules on the fly. The regulator says, I mean, outside whatever discretion they have, they say, look, I've reached the limits of my discretion. If you think the rules are not as they should be, go and lobby your politicians in the legislature. They'll change the legislation. And then when they do, that goes back to the regulator and the regulator enforces it. And I just think that's a a tried and tested, age-old model that I think really does work well for platforms as well. If this is a body of private law you absolutely do need all the public policy people and people with strong opinions in the legislature making that private law. It can't be non-political. It's just like nonsense. And then having made that private law, you then need a team of people with very different skill sets and very different uh, approaches who are simply trying to uh, apply the law in a very neutral and dispassionate way whilst giving feedback about when it is and isn't working. But again, they don't have the power to change it. Um, and I found that, uh, certainly in my experience, those things get can get quite mixed up and, and the lines are not clear. And crucially, you don't have the friction that you need, this really important bit of friction, where you found the regulations not working and you have to kick off a legislative process. Uh, you can't just say all just get together and go, oh, we'll just change the rules tomorrow. (laughs) You need... And that's the temptation. There's like some crisis happening, and so the temptation is, let's just change the rules tomorrow. In my experience, that nearly always leads to further negative consequences down the track. There's a reason we don't make laws overnight in certainly functioning democracies. There's some countries in the world where they do make laws overnight, but we don't normally regard those to be functioning democracies. And the reason is you actually need to think things through and work them through before you make those changes.
0: You can almost imagine extending that model and say that what you want is like the executive power, you want the, the judging power and the legislative power, and the executive power would be the people who say, here's a set of the things we need rules on. The legislative power then say, okay, those rules that you proposed seem to be fine, but we would like to change this and this and this, and then you would have them interpreted by the court. So you end up with, with Montesquieu, essentially, and that kind yeah. of power division when it comes to your content policy team. Um, but and that suggests to me both you are in both sort of the executive example and the legislature example, you do need a strong body of experts. What do you think are the main things? If you're recruiting a content policy expert, what do you recruit for in your yeah. interview with that person?
1: So so we should, yeah, first of that so the legislature uh, typically consists, and I'll, I'll use the UK model because that's the one I'm most familiar with, you've got the politicians, but then you have a bunch of career civil servants, people who spend their whole lives Thinking about how things work, and and a minister comes in and goes, I would like, you know, to paint all of the buildings in the country blue, and uh, the civil servant will have the folk memory and the knowledge and expertise to kind of go, well, minister, you do realise how much this is going to cost? Why it's not going to be possible? The, these laws that would be broken if you force everyone to paint the house blue, whatever. So so the civil servants are really really important part of this process, uh, and so again, I think that's critical in the in the place where you're making the laws you'll need some public policy people who understand the politics, but more importantly, or equally importantly, you need the people who understand the practicalities. So a set of people who who understand that policy A would lead to X million takedowns, policy B would lead to Y million, policy C is actually impossible to enforce because we tried it three years ago and it didn't work, policy D you know, would, would um, uh, actually break another policy that you've already got in place and therefore uh, contradict your own laws. So civil servants and legislature, uh, I think they're part of it. So that's what I'm looking for in those people, people who really understand the dynamics of uh, what a policy does and doesn't do and actually have a lot of experience and and memory of things that have been tried before that help you, you know, to avoid just making mistakes again. Again, if you were
0: hiring today then, just to sort of dig in on yeah. that for a moment, you, you would really be looking for someone or you would be prioritizing someone that, that had experience from perhaps moderating two very different environments so that they could see across those what was working and what wasn't. Something that gave them a sense of both the institutional memory, but also uh, you would really like them to come in with like a large catalog of failures. Yeah. That, Here, was the all idea. The yeah. Idea that was horrible.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I actually think, I mean, I, I hope that the sector generally is benefiting now from the fact that there are a, there's a cohort of people who have worked at you know youtube and facebook and instagram and and now reddit and uh, tiktok and all these different platforms and as that cohort grows i actually think those are going to be incredibly helpful people because they know where things are i think it's a always, new
0: profession essentially that has emerged
1: exactly. yeah. and i think it needs to be combined with a passion as civil servants do civil servants have a passion For making good policy that works, it's quite a different passion from the politician's passion. The politician has a passion to change the world in some particular way according to a vision they have. A civil servant has a passion uh, about getting stuff right. And so you want people with that experience and also that their happy place is is making a policy that, you know, they predict that it'll lead to a million takedown, it leads to 990,000, and they feel great because that was, you know, they professionally have judged that thing right. So very different skill set. And I'm going to distinguish those civil servants, which are policy servants, from regulators. And again, I think that's also a really important distinction that uh, uh, you take a sort of classic parliamentary model, you've got these politicians, you've got the policy civil servants who are helping the politicians make good law through their experience. They're neutral in a different way. They're neutral in a, in a partisan sense, but their skill set is all about making policies that work. And then you have regulators, which I think is a different mindset again. Uh, and, and sometimes we can make a mistake by combining all of these together or assuming that people are uh, uh, equal or equally weighted, when in fact I think there's a whole different regulator mindset, which is not about Crafting policies at all, it's it's about efficiency, it's about accuracy, it's about you know it's very operational, it's much more legalistic. I'd argue, it's about applying the law and applying it correctly. Uh, It's about often giving, if there's an independent regulator, giving robust feedback to the politicians um, and truly standing up to them and saying, look, as the regulator, you can't push me around. I'm enforcing the rules you've made, you know, and you can't just tell me to do something different or the rules you've made, you know, not working for this reason. They've got to be quite robust, very different mindset, I think, from the policy civil servant mindset. And you need all of these.
0: I think in the regulator you really want those people who are able to to scout the the edges of what's happening because one of the things that that you learn very quickly when you study what really good content policy teams do is that the kind of abuse that they're trying to moderate where it's whether it's through sort of posting certain kinds of content or it's certain kinds of behavior evolves all the time so it's like a red queen game it takes all of the running you can do to remain in the very same place of as highly moderated content platform. And so so one of the things you want there, and I think one of the things that I've seen in a couple of companies now, is this team that catches early signals and early warnings and really thinks through what those mean. And in the regulator, to, to your point, this robust ability to come back and say, this new thing that we see is not naturally something that we can subsume under any of the existing rule sets that you've given us to manage. So we need a new decision. Yes, that is, is also important because th- the failure mode of that is a regulator that mechanically applies whatever comes in to the existing rule set. Right? So
1: how how does it, how does it break? Yeah, I mean, a good modern regulator, is exactly at that point, will have really good technical people at their disposal, looking at the area that they're regulating and trying to predict ahead to where there are going to be problems. Uh, and then feeding those back early as early warning signals. You're right. If, if I think again in the op- in the optimal company, the perfect company, they're not going to hear that there's a problem with their content policy in the press <laughs> because somebody's really upset about something. They're going to hear first from their regulator, their internal regulator with this regulator mindset, who's going to say to them, "Look, uh, as the as the sort of responsible entity within the company for child safety or whatever it is they're looking after." I have noticed this problem, and I'm flagging it to you now. You've got to get ahead of it. Um, and I think the best regulators do work like that. They're not they're not just sitting back passively; they're very proactive. So it's that kind of regulatory model I think we want. Where it breaks is is frankly where the regulator, in the sense, is sort of too weak, or well, if any of these components are too weak. It's a it's a classic three legged stool. I think <laughs> if you've got you know. Very political people making the rules who don't have the support of the people with this policy civil servant mind mindset uh, who can tell them whether or not the rules are going to work. You know they're going to make bad rules um, if they're if they're too powerful and the regulator's too weak. They're gonna, the regulator's going to be a pushover. Um, it, actually if the regulator's too rigid and not imaginative enough and you don't have any political people, I'll stand up for the politics here now, the regulator's just going to lead the company into trouble by saying, these are the rules, we apply them blindly, we don't care what the politicians say, and and then you just have this massive political pressure that builds up and you look stubborn and unresponsive. So if any of these ones uh, are sort of dominant and you don't have the proper three-legged stool arrangement, I think you can end up in trouble. So so
0: we've made the argument now for for a content policy team growing out of the toss, how it sort of evolves over time, the kinds of components you need in it, the the importance of, and I think we, we can get back to this important of, of reflecting multiple cultures and multiple languages. That's going what? to be something that's absolutely central to get this right. But I want to sort of just take a a moment and and reflect on the alternative. What what about having no content policy team at all? Yes. What about instead saying that when you get a request for taking something down, you essentially take it down if the request is loud enough or important enough, and then you don't monitor whether or not it comes back on the platform. And then you just let it be. what, What is the compelling argument for not just having a reactive policy in which you you sort of eliminate stuff that seems pragmatically to be bothersome just saying i reserve the right not to service everybody yeah just sort of just to walk us through what that looks like because there is there are a few companies come to mind that seem to to have that policy when sort of the right person asks or enough people ask they go like okay that's it i'm taking this down it's not worth it
1: I mean, there's a, a, a really fascinating post by the guy. I think he runs Cloudflare, when when they, which is the company that provides protection for websites against denial of service attacks, and Cloudflare were were pushed to take down some white supremacist content. I think at the uh, time of the Charlottesville uh, killings in the US, um, if, if I remember correctly. But but the executive at Cloudflare, I think he wrote this post. It kind of basically said, look. I woke up this morning and, you know, this stuff was sort of uh, causing us too much grief. So I just took down, said, we're not going to offer the service to the white supremacists anymore. But I really disagree with the fact I have the power to do that and I shouldn't have the power to do that. But I had to make a decision. So it's kind of to your point it's that, you know, if it just gets too loud, then uh, as a a company, you you end up uh, being pushed into doing that. So that's not a great moment. I think from a from a a at a micro level, that's sort of the big picture story. There's something in the news where people are really being pushed. We can see it playing out real time with Spotify now. We don't know where they're going to end up with this uh, rogue podcast thing. They may end up saying, well, it's just too much trouble. We'll take that one down. And that wouldn't necessarily But so they've already
0: that. paid tons for it, yeah, which yeah. means that it's commissioned content to your earlier point about yeah. the, this. The, but, but just, you, you know, somebody uploads something on your platform. Um, the right people ask or enough people ask and you just take it down it can be can be the government and you go yeah. like oh i don't want to end up in trouble i'll just take it down
1: so, so that was interesting that was the way that again when when i was wicked at facebook people people thought it worked that way they thought if you reported something a hundred times or a thousand times that you would mechanically take it down here's the here's the um the the, the insight that i used to share with people they still never believe me but the insight is that Actually, the way that the moderation worked is somebody would moderate it a small number of times, so that's two or three times you get two or three reports come in, and once you've moderated it two or three times, you looked at it it's the same content you've decided you know yes, it's okay under the rules. you ignore and actually that was the language it was we say can you massage it a bit but basically <laughs> the button you push was ignore all subsequent reports, so and it's exactly right I mean you know you've looked at it three times four times, however many times, and the contents legal within the framework of this private law framework, the next thousand reports are are not going to add anything. There's no point in looking at it another thousand times. So you just would ignore those reports.
0: Well, you could have chosen to do that differently. You could say that if we reach these thresholds, we're going to take it down. Thresholds are calib- calibrated not to be able to just, you know, you're not going to give yourself up to trolls. But if 100,000 people think this is wrong, we'll yeah. just take it
1: down. So you could have a normal, a, a normalized platform like that. I mean, I have to say that one, one example to use which I think is true is that some of the most reported content was football content. And so, you know, uh, Manchester United posts something about how brilliant they are And you get five thousand reports from Manchester City saying this is terrible, it's hate speech, take it down, and vice versa. So you know so if you work that way, you would kinda you know, you can see where we're going. You you would end up with certainly in the political context, the football context, anything that's partisan. Everybody would just be taking, forcing removal of each other's content. Um, but but- would,
0: that be, would that be the end state, though? You could argue, and I'm just sort of driving yeah. this because I think it's interesting to explore it. I mean, if, if you did that it, as a platform, you would say, well, you're having it, you're having at each other, and I don't see why. And if that's your idea of how you should spend your time, then please go on. But for how long would people actually continue to attack each other and report each other before it starts to feel stale? Yeah. Start to feel like, eh, I'm not going. To do this anymore, and at that point, you'd sort of pushed that entire decision to the edges by saying, you know, if if enough people report this, or indeed if the right people report this, I'll just take it down because I can't. I mean, the hassle of having to set up a content policy team or monitoring all of the content or trying to have my own constitution or, or drive within my company this mini mental model of a government that's just too much cognitive overhead. I'm not. I can't yeah. see the point of that. I'm just no. That's not
1: for me. I mean, I I think, again, if you were very explicit, that's the rules of the game on your platform, and that's what people signed up for, I think it, it would be an interesting experiment to try. I'll just give you t- two reasons, though, why sort of principal reasons why I think people might object to, apart from the practical one of, like, <laughs> so much content will get removed constantly, which really does upset people, actually, from a practical point of view. Yeah, but yeah. The two are, are cases. When I talk about Manchester United, Manchester City, they're equal parties what happens when it's mobbing when it's an unequal party so you know a thousand people pick on one individual and get their stuff constantly taken down and actually people used to assume that was happening and that minorities content was being taken down because you know they've got thousand reports or whatever actually it wasn't it was because one you know if it's wrongly taken down because one of those three or four reports have been reviewed and content may have been taken down wrongly but you can imagine this at scale if it were known if that's the rules of the game then the mobbing of the the mass against the uh, individual clearly would be a problem. And then I guess the other one is the, is the one that we always have to come back to, which is the freedom of expression point. It's like if you have freedom of expression as a value, as a platform, and your starting point is to try and keep up as much content as possible, we could argue about how how practically they are doing that versus that being rhetoric. But if you're... Philosoph- philosophical approaches, we want to keep up as much content as possible, clearly implementing a mechanism that allows lots of people to get lots of content taken down is going to be problematic. Um, and so that's, I think, the fundamental reason why platforms have not gone for it. They, they might have happier users, maybe even, but uh, you know, if everything's sort of normalized into the middle... And there's no edgy content of any sort, but I say if you see your core mission as enabling a wide range of speech, uh, then that's problematic.
0: But it's, that's interesting, and I think you're exactly right. The ability to shout someone down and just to get them off the platform is uh, is horrendous because that would mean that minority voices might actually be taken off, as you say. And I think the other part of this is that if you if you end up having that be your public sphere then that's wrong but but that brings something to light which i think is interesting and that is that uh, almost to, i think every one of these platforms have in some way decided that they do believe that they should be platforms for speech and as such they should think about how they curate speech and that's that's sort of that's how they approach this yet we use this really weird term content moderation as if we want moderate content. That, yeah. that seems to be, that's just a, why, why do we, it's sort of a mealy-mouthed corporate way yeah. of talking about the curation of speech, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't like it. I actually, I, I've uh, <laughs> read about this. I think that the platforms are the biggest media regulators in the world. They are media regulators. That's what these, this function does. It is exactly functionally equivalent to a media regulator. We have one in the UK, Ofcom, that regulates the content of the BBC and the ITV, all the TV stations and things. I think they're functionally equivalent, but what they're doing is regulating the, the, the media produced by hundreds of millions of private individuals. So the individual is being regulated by the platform. And I just think it's much more honest to say that's what we have. We have a regulatory function here. Uh, we are regulating speech. And regulation is, is, I think, it's a harder word than moderation. It's not as hard as censorship. So, so we're not the chief censors, but we are the regulators. And we do have a set of rules and it isn't anything goes. And you need to live within the regulation as a private individual, just as the platform's, themselves need to live within the regulations set by the government. So there's a tiering of regulation here from government to platform and then platform to individual. But With the key difference it it though
0: is. I mean there's a key difference I, I, I like that I think it's nice to sort of call out what is actually happening One of the key differences that actually is a strength is that it's competitive regulation so yes. different platforms don't have the same kind of regulation If you want different media regulation in the UK you need to go to a different country The Ofcom is not going to go like oh here's a set of other people you can go talk to if you didn't like what we did <laughs> So there's, there's something there that's actually hopeful in the sense that you you can have regulatory competition which could lead to to some kind of evolution over time in this space, yes. Um, and I, I, I like that. So there, there's like a there's there's another thing that we want we promise to get uh, into, and that is the notion of how you make decisions. So, yeah. uh, so say that you're a content policy team and you're setting up this decision process, and I come to you with a problematic case of this person who has posted this piece of content. What should we, what's the right unit of analysis here? Is it the person or the content?
1: Yeah, wow. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, it's really interesting. I think they've tended to go for content, and that's partly an efficiency question. So, again, we, you know, the, the it's, it's a sort of fairly open secret that one the challenges they have are operating at scale, which you mentioned before, is decisions have to be made quickly. It is much quicker to just make a decision looking at a piece of content. It is much harder to go and look at, you know, all of the other content posted by that individual, look at patterns and so on. And so in my experience, what tends to happen is the vast majority of decisions are made within, I think they call the four corners of the content. There is a photo, there's a piece of text. You look at that and you make a decision. A subset of decisions uh, will get escalated to a more specialist team who will will go into the context and look at who the person is who posted it and what their track record is and some various other things. There's good privacy reasons why you don't want to look at all of the unrelated unrela- or unreported content if you don't need to. And that judgment of when you do need to go broader is a really hard judgment to make. To give an example of where looking at the four corners goes badly wrong is we used to hit quite often instances where people were sharing hate speech Anti-Semitic speech was a classic one where there was a group of people who were trying to spot the haters and trying to fight back. (laughs) So you'd have a group of people going, "Oh my God, have you seen this anti-Semitic content over there? We need to sort of make sure those people got off the platform and that it gets reported." And in doing so, they themselves will share the anti-Semitic content. Now, if you looked at the name of the group, which is "We Hate Anti-Semites," you and you looked at the pattern of the content in that group, you understood what was going on. But if you simply had in front of you a post of a piece of anti-Semitic content, it wasn't always apparent why they were posting it and that it was being posted as anti-Semitic as opposed to anti-Semitic. And so you get instances like that. So the four corners approach, I think, is the dominant model that platforms choose to follow. Uh, But I think it is problematic. And the real skill is, is understanding, look, when is it something where you can look at the four corners of the content, you know, uh, bang, take it down? And when is it something where you actually need that additional bit of context to make a fair decision and a reasonable decision?
0: If, if I was to challenge that slightly and say that I think that the trend over the last five years has been to move from the speech to the speaker, would you would you say that I was wrong?
1: Um, I would say uh, I do think AI tends to take us in that direction. So I think for the human moderation, when a person looks at content, I still think they're largely looking at the speech because that's the way those systems work. Um, but again, people listening to this may correct me and say that it's it's you know they're going a lot more into it. I th- almost think the trend was the other way. When I started Facebook, I think they had more time to look at uh, the individuals and the systems of setups and more data was available to a reviewer. As the review mechanism has become mechanized and outsourced and reached scale, the human review mechanism I think the systems they're using are much more, look, here's an image, here's some text. Yes, no, take down, leave up, uh, quick decision. But that's the content policy teams, though. What about the political
0: scrutiny of the platforms? Is that moving yeah. I think from speech to
1: speaker? I think it's moving to speaker, and that's where some of these uh, actual gaps occur. So I dealt with Facebook, this group called Britain First, very unpleasant right-wing group uh, 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 that operated in the United Kingdom, were a registered legal political party, uh, have since, um, uh, I think, I'm not sure, various members have been criminalized. I don't want to kind of step out of the frame, but various members have had legal issues. Uh, and I think the group is no longer a registered legal political party. But at the time it was, and they were posting content which was uh, of this dog whistle kind. It was kind of, you knew where they were going, but only because you knew who the speaker was. So the same content posted by somebody else may have been innocent. But when that exact same piece of content, so if you only looked at the four corners of the content, it, uh, you would leave it up. And they stayed on the platform for quite a long time because their content, they knew how to keep it the right side of the content policy rules. But knowing who they were was really problematic. And so the pressure was on at the political level to say, look, yeah, their content may you know, not technically cross the line, but it's obvious that they're a bunch of, you know, people who are trying to stir up racial hatred in the United Kingdom, and therefore you should take them out. So I think that's a classic example of where people have moved towards being focused on the speaker. And I say I think the other trend that goes in that direction is the AI trend, where because AI can look at the patterns across the data, so it hasn't got the same issue. You're not asking a human reviewer to look at all the content being posted by individual or groups. You can, the AI, for example, can scan a group in the blink of an eyelid and understand if there's a pattern that says this is problematic uh, in a way that it would be very difficult for humans to pick up because they'd have to look at each individual item of content and these patterns may not emerge. So I imagine, for example, on my anti-Semitic example, AI probably could much more smartly exclude that group of speakers because they're speakers who are trying to combat anti-Semitism than a human reviewer could looking at their items of content. So it's kind of the the AI adds an extra functionality, which I would argue is in part speaker-based because it's looking at whole swathes of content as opposed to individual items.
0: So the first thing we had was somebody coming to you with a person who posted a piece of content and you say we look at the content that's how content policy teams typically try to decide this because it's easier to look within the four corners of the content. Now, you have the content in front of you and you're then drawn to try to decide whether or not it's within the rules. What what how do you do how do you apply the rules to an individual piece of yeah. content that's necessarily not going to be clear cut?
1: Yeah, so they they have leaked uh, various times these training decks, and I've been through that experience and actually taken some government people through the experience so they can see that. Because again, one of my frustrations I I'm able to vent in this podcast. But one of my frustrations is <laughs> you should yes. They, when you meet people from government and they go like, "Well, just remove all the hate speech," and you go, "Okay, so what is hate speech?" And you go, "Well, you know, hate speech," and then you show them a bunch of examples and you go, "Yes or no?" And they go, "Well, oh, I'm, I'm not sure." And I've done this with people, you know, very different people who really and they, "Oh, right." Now I understand it's not quite as easy. So the answer is it's really difficult. And there are these like slide decks with hundreds of slides that they use to train the content moderation staff. Uh, And and it always impresses me just how professional people are, that they are able to absorb all of these rules and try and make the best decisions they can. And of course, sometimes they make errors, but it is literally like hundreds of slides saying, look, if you use this word, in conjunction with that word, that is hate speech, but watch out if it's used in conjunction with that word, it may not be hate speech, and, and you're going into all this kind of minute detail, um, and that's the only way you can do it. And the one we cited before, the kind of one is uh, is is a, a, a somebody topless in respect of a nudity policy, which goes into details of whether or not if they're wearing a string vest Uh, how much of the spring has to cover which part of the nipple in order for you to be able to make that decision. And with, you know, slide decks, with those kind of examples on it, that's the way they do it. Um, But yeah, Mm. guys, almost impossible job.
0: (laughs) Yes. And and I think the most facile tech-critical article you can write is to take one of these rules in the slide deck, take it out of context and say, isn't this a simplistic way to think about speech? And ignoring the fact that you need to be simplistic in order to actually come out with a binary decision at the end. Yeah. Because you kind of need to. Now, you apply the rules to this piece of content that was brought to your attention, and you now have to make a decision about the content. Now, there are a couple of different things you can do. Most people tend to think that, that it's just you know take down or leave up but in fact there are tons of different things that can follow follow on a classification of content as problematic so for example you can restrict access to the content what other kinds of things can you imagine would happen
1: the most nuclear option is we're going to remove your entire account and that, that will happen. Something like child sexual abuse material, all the major platforms will say that's it, you're off. That's it, you're and, out. Yeah. And and we'll report you to the authorities actually. So it's kind of yeah. Um and then you sort of scale back from that to the other end. The softest possible option is we're gonna give you a warning. We're just gonna pop something up saying, Hey, you know, can you try and sort of stick with the rules in future? And then you're right, in between you've got various things. There would be there's temporary bans, can't post any content for twenty-four hours or uh, if you break it again, second offence, can't post for uh, a week, and so on. Um, uh, there's the, uh, and that may be associated with the removal of the content. Typically, it would be. So we're going to remove the content. We're going to uh, impose some kind of restriction on you. There's the simple removal of the content. It's just gone. Um, so there's a whole range. There's, there's one which I, I used to think was quite effective, a gatekeeper one, which says, look, we're going to remove the content. And we're going to next time you try and log on, we're going to throw a message up saying, "Hey, you broke the rules. Here's why. Go and go and refresh yourself about our terms of service, our policies, on our TOS and click here to say I've read them and understood." <laughs> yeah, which mean, you know is is quite a good sort of uh, uh, way of dealing with it. There's it's only... like
0: when you lose your driver's
1: license, right? You have to go back to driver's school. If it, that sort of model, and and there's another one which um, I think some of the platforms are experimenting with, and I think it's quite interesting, which is reducing distribution. And so, you know, there's removing the content, but for some kinds of content, it may be, this would be for marginal content. Look, it's not bad enough that we think it needs to not exist on the platform, but it does upset other people. So what we'll do is we'll tweak our algorithm, the famous algorithms, to make sure that that content doesn't get any uh, organic, as they call it, distribution. It's not gonna get posted in anybody's feed. Uh, If they come and look at your profile, they'll still see it, it still exists. But it's not, our our system is not going to try and make sure that other people see it.
0: There's a slogan there, right? You have a right to speech, but not a right to reach. It's that
1: one, yeah. And and yeah. and we can restrict your reach uh, for certain types of content. And again, if without it's, restricting uh, your speech, without yeah. restricting your speech, you still have freedom of speech. Freedom of sort freedom. of a sort of a weird
0: distinction, though, because speech and reach are connected with each other, aren't they?
1: They are, uh, and and it's you know it's fair to say that if you are reducing the distribution of content artificially, i.e., against the systems you put suppressing in, like, it, suppressing yes. it, then that has a freedom. Expression effect. Uh, so you you know you leave people shouting into the void. But again, I think if you're explicit but you about it, shout. you can <laughs> shout. Yeah, you can shout. You, can, um, you yes. know, you can you can shout fire, but the theater won't be crowded because there'll be nobody in there. We'll just make sure when you're shouting fire, the theater is empty, uh, and and our system allows us to do that. You know uh detect word fire, make sure theatre is empty, but you still shouted it. So so yes. there is there is a system sort of that, that can do that. And again, I think if you're really upfront and honest about it, and that's in the contract. there might be reasons to do that, to say, look, um, you know, you, you, on our platform, uh normative speech, you know, this this sort of speech is super acceptable and when you post it, it'll get shared to everybody. Uh, and it'll get lots of engagement, and that's great. You'll enjoy that. This kind of speech, if you want to share it, you can do because it's important for your expression, but people on our platform don't want to see it. Uh, and we've made that decision, and we're telling you that. And so, you know, you can direct people to it, but it's not going to get any distribution.
0: And it's one of the hardest questions for a content and policy team or one of the hardest, not questions for you, but one of the, the perhaps... Um, confusions is this this thing that m- people tend to say i should have a right to speech on the internet and then translate that directly into i should be able to post whatever i want on your platform yeah that you can't make the distinction between the platform and, and as a content policy team, you're constantly struggling with, with people conflating the two, uh, whilst also recognizing of course, that your platform can be really the prime place where this particular thing is being discussed or the, the prime public sphere of this particular debate or discussion or whatever it is. So, so this, because I mean, there's, there's still a lot of opportunity to post stuff on the internet, even if you're, Content is being moderated or regulated on a platform.
1: That's right. I mean, to be mean to the platforms, uh, it is one of those areas where they get uh, the English phrase "hoist by your own petard," which is, uh, you know, they 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 will, when it suits them, go look. We're we're this massively uh, influential public space, and if you're not on our platform, you're nobody. You've got to be on our platform. That's their marketing pitch. Uh, uh, when it suits them, and then other times when it suits them, it's like, well, you know, if we restrict speech on your platform, it's not restricting it completely, and and you can go elsewhere. So it's it's actually a difficult. One. But I think they should be upfront and honest and say, look, you know, they're looking after a community. They're, you're right; it's not the whole internet. We should be really clear that um, a true uh, uh, freedom of expression restriction is one uh, where a government typically says you cannot say this at all anywhere in any circumstances that is when my speech is actually restricted because i do always have the option we have to remember that as long as it's not illegal if a mainstream platform excludes me and if, if there's enough of us and we're excluded we create our own platforms again we've seen a lot of talk about that in the us and that that dynamic over time is real and we shouldn't we shouldn't dismiss it so Freedom of expression still exists as long as you can create an alternative platform and build it at the same time being excluded from the mainstream platforms has an effect we can't say it has no effect uh, it has a significant political effect I think um, but they say it's not for me you know to, to say well this is restricted on this platform this form of speech therefore, you know, uh, freedom of expression has been fundamentally utterly destroyed, I think is overstating the case.
0: It does create a problem for content policy teams though, because they also have to take into account the question of whether or not the content that they moderate out is displaced into places where it's much harder to find police and get to a better place with. So, So they obviously have to take that into account as well, which goes to the question we we started with, which was, what is the what is the harm? And yes. one part of the harm can actually be that controversial discussions that are at the edges of what we are, that we that what we want to accept in our societies, move into fora where we can't engage when those discussions.
1: Anyway. And that's where you need to bring everyone together. In the kind of conversations we've been involved in around the um, uh, uh, forum for counterterrorism. Uh, that, that took place precisely on that basis that it included all the large platforms, but they were really, really keen is the, to make sure that for that uh, GIF-CT, isn't it? A global yes. Internet Forum on Cancer Terrorism, that GIF-CT also brought in the smaller platforms exactly so that you didn't end up with the unintended consequence of being big platforms, do something, get shoved to smaller platforms who often have fewer resources, to build all of this machinery and that we end up net, net worse off. Um, so I think the solution to that is to bring everyone together. Yes. So
0: content policy, plenty of stuff to talk about, certainly. And, and a really, really good listener question. So thank you for that. Um, and this uh, and other podcasts can be found on your website, which is?
1: www.regulate.tech.
0: And send us more listener questions and we'll see if we can get into them. We'd really like to, to hear from you. And we hope that we'll have you with us in our next episode. Thanks for listening.